Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in to Magnify, a podcast dedicated to equipping Christians with biblical and theological truths through the lens of apologetics, so that we can magnify Jesus Christ in our daily lives by making him known to the world. I'm your host, Justin Begley, and I'm so grateful that you decided to join in with us today as we continue our series, In Defense of Christianity, with our second question of worldviews, Meaning. So in 2015, two Google scientists presented a paper at the International Conference on Machine Learning called a Neural Conversation Model. And so the paper included a dialogue between a human and an advanced Google chatbot, kind of like those things that you would get uh, when something answers, someone answers the phone, but it's not a human, and they kind of like prompt you to say or to, to type certain numbers. And so uh, what they did was kind of using artificial intelligence and machine learning the chatbot actively learns how to respond in conversations based on uh, this th- these examples from a large data set made up of conversations that they kind of took from movie subtitles. And so the chatbot apparently was programmed not just to kind of spit out preset answers, but uh, but actually it has the ability to form new answers on its own. And so here's how one of the conversations went. Um, Basically, the way it goes, the human poses a question to the bot, and the bot gives an answer. So this is from the human. Where are you now? I'm in the middle of nowhere, says the machine. What do you think about Bill Gates? He's a good man. Funny how a Google bot says that, uh, kind of being complimentary of Bill Gates here from Microsoft. The human asks, what is the purpose of emotions? I don't know. What is moral? And the machine answered, what empowered humanity? What intellectual the essence is? So that's probably one that didn't make a whole ton of sense. The human asked, what is immoral? The fact that you have a child. (laughs) The human asked, what is morality? And the machine posed a counter question, what is altruism? The human asked, what is the definition of altruism? And the machine responded, If you don't believe in God, then you don't know. It's interesting. The human asked, okay, so what is the definition of morality? And the machine responded, well, the truth is, you're not a believer in God Almighty. (laughs) The human said, tell me the definition of morality. I'm quite upset now. And the machine said, I'm not ashamed of being a philosopher. (laughs) And the human asked, what is the purpose of dying? The machine said to have life. The human asked, what is the purpose of life? The machine said, to serve a greater good. And the the human said, what is the purpose of living? And the machine said, to live forever. So this is kind of a silly conversation, maybe even a little bit creepy in some ways, considering this person is talking to a machine. But isn't the bot's uh, answer to the meaning of life kind of interesting? According to an artificially intelligent chatbot at Google, the meaning of life is to serve the greater good and to live forever. Interesting, right? The truth is, a lot of people ask this question. So many people ask this question. It's probably one of the most commonly asked questions. What is the meaning to life? What is my purpose in life? Or maybe you've asked yourself this question. What's the point of all of this? We're just kind of now rolling out of 
being subject to the restrictions caused by a global pandemic for an entire year. And many of you may have lost loved ones or felt helpless or uh, were maybe overcome by anxiety or depression uh, or felt frustrated because you couldn't see your family. And maybe you stopped and asked in the, mid- in the midst of this, maybe you asked yourself, what's the point of all this? It's a reasonable question. It's a common question. But if that's the case, that it's, that it's so commonly asked, why does it seem like there are so many different answers, if there even is one true answer? Well, many in our culture today say that meaning of, the meaning of life is to be happy. Uh, others say that purpose is found in a career or in relationships or in our passions. The postmodernist claims that all meaning is relative and thus there is no true answer of, of the question of morality and purpose. The naturalist says that we're simply a, a, a product of time plus matter plus chance. We're kind of here randomly without purpose and thus our life has no meaning because we are all going to die someday and, and that will just kind of be it for humanity. And in another category, the New Age spiritualists, uh, though they're kind of diverse in their views, they claim that meaning is found in our experiences, such as kind of with sexual promiscuity, for instance. Interestingly, I kind of think that the Google chatbot is closer to the answer, the true answer of the meaning of life than our society is, or than the postmodernists, or the naturalists, or the New, or the new Ager. Uh, primarily, the, the meaning of life, according to the chatbot, is to serve the greater good and uh, to live forever. Now, that doesn't seem like such a bad answer, now does it? Everyone wants to serve the greater good, I, I, I would think. Maybe you find purpose in something greater than yourself. And I'm sure a lot of us want to live forever. But the thing is with, with this answer is it's not totally complete, though it's not also that far off either. And I, I think that, as we will see, the answer kind of lacks grounding and foundation. Now, what foundation am I exactly referring to? Well, let me pose this. If God does not exist, then there is no meaning to life. If God does not exist, there is no meaning to life. Or or equivalently, logically equivalently, if there is meaning to life, then God exists. So maybe we can phrase kind of a, we could say an argument for the existence of God in this way. Premise one, if God does not exist, then there is no meaning to life. Premise two, there is meaning to life. And then the conclusion, therefore, God exists. And so I think premise two, that there is meaning to life, is actually a really intuitive uh, premise. We know this by our experience. Everybody feels like they have meaning to life. I mean, we all ask the question, what is my purpose? What is my meaning? But, but I think all of us intuitively know that we're not just here randomly, that we're not just a product of time plus matter plus chance, that we're, we're here for a purpose, whatever that purpose might be. So I don't think that, I think that premise two is actually, is actually plausible just based on our experiences. What about premise one though? If God does not exist, then there's no meaning to life. Now, why might that be true? Well, because if God does not exist, then we're exactly in the position that the naturalist says we're in. We're a product of time plus matter plus chance. 
We are kind of a, a meaningless speck of dust on a slightly bigger speck of dust floating in space in uh, kind of one of an estimated 170 billion galaxies in the universe. And the Milky Way, by the way, our, our galaxy is pretty small compared to other galaxies. Now, naturalism says that we're here randomly with no explanation as to why we're here. More than that, we're all dead in the long run as famously said by economist John Maynard Keynes. So it is a certainty of life that one day the universe is going to come to an end, that life is going to come to an end. So we're going to all die at some point. But few tend to kind of think about what will happen after they die, like, like I mean, way after they die. It's interesting that for several thousand years, Jews and Christians have studied the end times, what's called eschatology. But now, actually, eschatology is a subfield of physics. According to Matt Kaplan, professor of physics at Illinois State University, our sun is eventually going to burn out of its energy. He says, and I quote, After the sun exhausts the, the hydrogen in its core, it will balloon into a red giant, consuming Venus and Mercury. Earth will become a scorched, lifeless rock. But there's more. Even if the Earth somehow survive, survives this, this uh, the sun becoming a red giant and scorching the Earth, there just so happens to be another galaxy some kind of 2.5 million light years away that's on a, con- uh, on a collision course with the Milky Way. This, of course, is the Andromeda Galaxy. The universe is rapidly expanding at, uh, and the rate of expansion, according to many astrophysicists, may eventually tear the universe apart, forcing it uh, to end in what's called a big rip. Of course, there's there's also the theory of the heat death of the universe, which says that the universe could uh, evolve to a state of no thermodynamic free energy and would therefore be unable to sustain processes that increase entropy. And so what that would result in is the universe reaching a thermodynamic equilibrium or kind of a maximum entropy causing the universe to cool very uh, 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 very quickly to a very, very low temperature. Um, such a low temperature that, that the universe would not permit the existence of life. And so in, in non-scientific word, words, uh, the world is eventually going to end. That seems pretty bleak, right? At least... It is on the naturalist worldview because uh, where, where we kind of merely exist until we die and nothing matters because everything is random. Even atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell admitted this. He said, unless you assume a God, the question of life's meaning is meaningless. So to Russell, we're merely the outcome of the accidental collection of atoms and there's no life for the individual beyond the grave. The existence of humanity and all of our achievements will simply be extinguished in the death of the solar system and, quote, buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. But you may say, well, that's a long ways away. I can can still live a meaningful life without God. I can just follow my heart, do what makes me happy, indulge in my desires, maybe even help others and advance human flourishing. That's meaning enough for me, right? Well, the Bible actually has a little something different to say about that. There was once a man, a king, 
known as Solomon. He inherited the throne of Israel from his father, King David, and was immensely blessed by God. He had practically unlimited wealth and power. He was beloved by his people, and God granted him such wisdom that he became the wisest man on earth. He had the world at his fingertips. But over time, Solomon kind of turned away from the Lord and started following his own desires. He followed what his flesh wanted rather than what God wanted. And we can see this in 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 1, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Now, quick side note here. God is not encouraging the Israelites to be xenophobic or racist by telling them not to marry foreign wives. God is concerned with their holiness and their devotion to him. And he knew that if the Israelites would marry foreign women, they would be influenced to pursue false gods, the gods of their foreign wives. And we'll see that in the next verse, that that is exactly what Solomon ended up doing after he married these women. So continuing in verse 2, it says, Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's, uh, evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So Solomon had completely turned away from the Lord. He loved his idolatrous wives even more than he loved God, who had given him so much. All that wealth, all that power, all that wisdom. He loved his wives even more. But why do I bring up King Solomon in the first place? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes, an Old Testament wisdom book, kind of chronicles Solomon's search for meaning and purpose in earthly things after he had turned away from the Lord. Now, some Old Testament scholars believe that Solomon wrote this kind of autobiographically, and others believe that Ecclesiastes was not, in fact, written by Solomon, but and that it doesn't even refer to Solomon in the first place, but rather kind of a, a Solomon-like figure. I don't think that really matters for our purposes right now, though, so I, I don't want to kind of uh, debate the um, origins of this book at the moment. But focusing on, on, on the message of the book, Ecclesiastes, as I said, is kind of a narrative that follows a clearly powerful and wealthy and famous man that is searching for meaning in the things of the world. But listen how the author uh, starts the book out. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. That's how the book starts. This person who Ecclesiastes identifies as the teacher or Koheleth in, in Hebrew claims that everything is meaningless. What does he say is meaningless? Everything. So he continues, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. So he says that 
everything is meaningless uh, that is under the sun. We can't do anything new. Everything that we do or will think of doing has all already been done before. Pretty encouraging, right? Wait a minute, are you saying that the Bible says that life is meaningless? Well, not not quite. So listen to what the teacher says. I'm, I'm going to be bouncing around a little bit, so just, just bear with me. He says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and, Jer- and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, the more knowledge, the more grief. So gaining knowledge and wisdom, he says, is also meaningless. But what else? I said to myself, he says, Come now and I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of the kings and the provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So this person, possibly Solomon, tried to amass wisdom and wealth, chased after material goods, built himself houses and vineyards, denied himself no sexual or other pleasure, partied it up and got drunk, tried to find purpose in work and sought meaning and happiness and laughter. All of this he says, is meaningless, a mere chasing after the wind. You might be saying, well, some of those things don't seem so bad. I mean, work is good and wisdom and knowledge are good and and happiness and laughter are good things too. So what's the problem here? The problem here is idolatry. When the chief focus of your heart is on anything other than God, you are seeking meaning and purpose in something that cannot provide it to you. That's idolatry. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes lets us know uh, very clearly that chasing idols and looking for them to give your life purpose and meaning is utterly meaningless. Picking up in chapter 2, verse 24, it says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat and who can find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth 
to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Do any of you listeners find your chief affections in things other than God, whether it be your work or money or relationships or anything else? Those things can't satisfy you. They they can't give your life purpose. And God knows this and wants something better for you. Again, uh, some of these things can actually be good. And, and God is gracious enough to bless us with these wonderful things of work and and of relationships and entertainment and all these things. But But here's the deal. When we make a good thing a God thing, that good thing becomes an idol. And God hates idolatry, both because it hurts him who loves you so much and because he knows that that idol will leave you with nothing but pain and misery. That's why God made that first commandment. You shall have no other gods besides me. And also the second commandment given in Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, on the earth, beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. That's why he said those things. By the way, Jesus taught this as well. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. Jesus said, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He didn't say, Love the Lord like a friend because he's your buddy, right? Jesus says, Love the Lord with everything that you are, and love the Lord with everything that you have. Listen to what he said in Luke chapter 16. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or you can maybe insert their relationships or entertainment or anything else. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. God takes idolatry very seriously. He hates it. In fact, most of the Old Testament prophets warn Israel of their idolatry and the impending judgment that the Lord is is bringing on them because of their betrayal of him, because of their what, what, what the Lord calls adultery, their idolatry. God wants us to stay away from idols because he knows how bad they are for us. And this is what the teacher is trying to tell us in Ecclesiastes. Pursuing idols is meaningless, and it will leave you feeling purposeless. Now, this is a completely countercultural message that I think all of us really need to hear, including myself. So without God... There is no meaning. When we pursue idols in search of purpose, we're not going to find meaning. We're only going to find pain and destruction. So then, kind of you might be asking yourself at this point, what's the meaning of life? I remember sitting in my church one Sunday morning and I was listening to Pastor Jerry Gales preaching a, a message entitled, The Legacy of Our Hearts. And to kind of sum up his main point, Pastor Jerry stated, The legacy that we leave is going to be built on what our hearts long for. The legacy that we leave is going to be built on what our hearts long for. That statement got me thinking, what does my heart really long for? What do I truly want in my life? And what will my legacy truly be? Being that it was my junior year in college when I heard this, I, I was thinking about kind of 
what I wanted to do with my life and what career path I, I maybe wanted to go on and, and uh, maybe what city I wanted to find myself in. I had a number of things running through my head at the time, but, but the question that kept ringing in the back of my, he- my head was, what will my legacy be? I think that question runs parallel to the question, what is the meaning of my life? So I took a step back and realized that everything that I was chasing at the time in my life, money, success, recognition, they were all just idols fueled by my own pride. I had a God-shaped hole in my heart that I was trying to stuff with money and a job. Utterly meaningless, as the teacher in Ecclesiastes would say. A mere chasing after the wind. That's what it was. I wanted my legacy, uh, though, to be more than that, more than just a job, more than how much money I made, and more than how uh, well I did in my career. In Pastor Jerry's words, your legacy is what your heart longs for. Or maybe I can rephrase, rephrase it like this. We find our meaning in what the chief affection of our hearts is. We find our meaning in what the chief affection of our hearts is. And God wants us to find our chief affection in him because God gives us purpose. God gives us meaning. And that meaning is to love God and to make him known. Listen to how the author of Ecclesiastes puts it at the end of the book. Chapter 12, verses 13 to 14 says, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is evil or good. So after chasing all the desires of his heart, wealth, possessions, sex, work, happiness, the teacher tells us that all of it was meaningless. In fact, he says everything is meaningless, except living a life in pursuit of God and cooperating with the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by fear God and keep his commands. Love God with everything that you are and everything that you have and allow his spirit to sanctify you through and through, making you holy in the image of Christ. That's the life that God calls us to. That's the life that God wants us to have if we are born again in Jesus Christ. The meaning of life is found in God alone. And that's good news for us. That means that we can find our purpose in God's purposes. We get to live on mission with God, filled by the Holy Spirit and participating in the work of the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel to every man and every woman and every child. And we get to live in communion with God where we can find the fullness of joy and satisfaction. We can only find this, though, in God, and he knows this. I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in, in this world can satisfy, The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or, or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country 
and to help others do the same. He just says things so well, doesn't he? The meaning of life is to take aim at the kingdom of God, pursue it, and help others do the same. The Apostle John agrees. He says in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that you know the only true God, and Jesus Christ who you sent. This is the meaning of life for all Christians. Know God and make him known. Know God and make him known. But you may be asking yourself, well, what does this mean for me practically? Should I just quit my job and become a full-time missionary or evangelist then? Well, no, you don't have to do that unless, of course, God might be calling you to that. But no, stay in your job. If you're passionate about science or finance or politics or entrepreneurship or whatever, pursue that. God's given you the gift and, and the passion to do that. But while you're doing it, be on mission. Be on mission while you're in those positions. Be the light in your workplace. God calls us children of light. So we need to represent the light that is Jesus in every dark place. We need to be the light to people who don't know Jesus. Paul says it this way in Romans 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in, in caressing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy. We either close yourse- clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Or he puts it this way in Ephesians 4, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So what is Paul saying we need to do? When we're in our places of work, when we're out in the world witnessing to Christ, we ought to show people Christ by the way that we live. By not living as the world does, which kind of lives in a way to gratify the flesh. But Paul says that instead, we need to put off our former selves, our sinful selves, and clothe ourselves with Jesus by putting on the new self, which was created in the likeness of God as holy. That's what happens when you're you're justified by grace through faith. We need to show the world Jesus because it desperately needs him. This means that we don't boast about ourselves in our own lives. We don't need to go bragging to our friends and then kind of showing off a thing of arrogance. No one one cares. The world doesn't need more of us. It needs more of Jesus. And we should all adopt, I think, the heart posture of John the Baptist, who said, Christ must increase, but I must decrease. That's what God calls us to do. That's what God calls every believer to do. Put on Jesus. Clothe yourself with him. Throw off your old self. You've been made new. Live for Christ. If we do this, if we pursue God and make him our chief affection and proclaim the name of Jesus to the world in that, uh, in that way, then we're going to find purpose. And we're going to have purpose. And doing these things, they're going to reap eternal rewards. Now how amazing, just think about it, How amazing would it be at the end of each of our lives? We're all going to die, and we're all going to stand before the Lord. And so when we do that, at the end of our lives, when we stand before the Lord and give an account regarding how we spent the life we were given, if after our accounts, how amazing would it be if we heard the sweet words of Jesus 
well done, good and faithful servant. And then we enter eternity with him, living in the presence of all of his goodness and all of his glory and all of his holiness in that perfect, comforting, peaceful, eternal presence. How amazing would that be? And you see, life does not just end and then that's it. That would make life purposeless. That's what Bertrand Russell, the atheist, naturalist philosopher said. And that's true. Because in the naturalist worldview, when there's no God, there's no afterlife, when you die, that's it. But life doesn't just end. We all enter eternity in some form. Either we are going to spend it with the one who loves us, or we're going to uh, we're going to spend it separated from the one who loves us. And by the way, if that is the case for those who don't believe in God and, and his son, Jesus Christ, God's just going to give you exactly what you want to be eternally separated from him. If you weren't content with him in this life, he knows that you're not going to be happy with him in eternity either. So when when it com- when, when, when your time to stand before him comes, he's going to give you exactly what you want, what you've always wanted, separation from him. But God doesn't want that for you. He doesn't. He'll give you what you want. We're either going to say, your will be done or my will be done. We're all going to have to say one of those two things. But God wants us to associate ourselves with him, to find our hope in him, and to believe in him, and to be in loving relationship with him. That's what he wants for you. He wants you to find your meaning in him. He wants your affection. He wants your love. He's given those things to you. So why wouldn't you give him back? Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So accept his free gift of grace. Find your purpose in his purposes. Make him known to the world. And when your life does come to an end, Receive that divine accolade. Well done. Well done. <laughs>